0: Costle 1, police officer speaking.
1: Pastor coming here, Pastor coming. We're 1.5
0: below. 2.5 below.
1: 2 days here below.
0: We're looking at 10.5 to 42. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us again. Hopefully you all have listened to Nick Maloney part one and are back for more. We're just getting to the scary stuff. I promise you, it'll have you on the edge of your seat. It's good. If you've yet to listen to part one, maybe scroll back and give part one a go first. It's full of anecdotes about the America's Cup, the Whitbread with Dennis Connor, and a ton more including that crazy non-stop solo windsurf across the Bass Straits. A story that'll give you a great glimpse into the tenacity of the man. A little reminder for me before we kick off, this pod was recorded in the midst of COVID-19 and social distancing. Nick lives around the corner from me, so we recorded our chat in our back garden. He came through the back gate, we sat outside a long way apart, and at all times adhered strictly to social distancing guidelines. So once again, enjoy the birdsong. I think there's even a helicopter or two, but it was lovely and peaceful. So we ended up chatting for a good couple of hours. In this part, Nick has without question warmed up. He's open about the reality of winning the Jules Verne Trophy, pushing a massive multi-hull around the planet at top speed and also how tough solo sailing was, how twice he found himself fighting for survival. But he speaks candidly about burning out, about what finally pushed him away from the sport he loved and why he's now back. Ladies and gentlemen, strap yourself in. It's a blockbuster. I hope you enjoy part two of the time I spent in the garden with Nick Maloney.
1: My arm slid down the narrowing of the V and snapped my forearm in half. We had 64 days of living by the minute. And as soon as the situation got critical, he appeared like a fairy.
0: We've heard about that windsurf across the Bass Strait, Nick. You did it on your own, which looking back may have really planted a seed because by 1999, you were back sailing on your own, no longer part of a team taking on the Mini Transat. What was the appeal of solo sailing? Um,
1: The appeal, the solo appeal, it really came to me from um, from the BOC challenge really. The original sort of Five Oceans or whatever it might be as some may remember it. That stopped in Australia and I remember that was really inspiring to me because we didn't have a lot of connection to world-class events in Australia. We obviously had the Sydney Hobart race, um, but all the big, big events, Admiral's Cup, etc., help happening on foreign shores. Um, so when a big event like that came to Australia, I was really wowed by it. And um, and I always wondered whether that, whether I could do that. I don't, I don't know. There was a lure to it, some sort of beauty in it that I just. Wondered if I could could do that, and then that obviously grew. The mini trans that was a really difficult one for me, um, and I had a an accident that that you know where without a word of a lie I felt like I was going to die, and, and I nearly drowned, and um, and I was still, I was still there was still something there, and that and that motivation had come from seeing sailors and not big in stature. If you take Alan Macarthur, not not a big person, you know, and um, you know, uh, Alan Gortier. all these people, they're not huge in stature, but they get on these massive boats and not just sail them across the ocean, they race across the ocean. And I wondered if I could do that. That was probably the biggest thing. And I was very inspired by it. I think going to the the Transat start and a few other starts and just seeing that happen um, was was a big thing for me.
0: The mini Transat is not a big boat. (laughs) It's probably as long, as as far away as you are from me today. I mean, I remember that edition of the race. It's known as, as the tough one. You were all sent out into a massive brewing storm in the Bay of Biscay. Dozens of sailors had to be rescued. And it was a race, Nick, that you'll never forget.
1: No, and, um, and I do think that the mini-transat back then, and I assume there's probably some still some merit in it, Today, is it was a bit of a rite of passage. It was something that if anyone wanted to do a solo event, it sort of it was sort of taken that you would cut your teeth in the mini transat, and you would earn, particularly in France, you would earn your respect in France through the mini transat, because it's tough. It's so extreme when you think of that how small the boat is, but also you're very limited. You don't have you certainly don't have sat phone or any other communication. You have a small radio receiver for weather, and that's it. You don't have any. You've handheld VHF, but that's it. So, um, so your lifeline is your ePerb or your Argos. We we were programming um, sort of like Morse messages off our Argos to say that we're okay. Um, and this was that. That was it. So the 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 removal from the safety net is pretty pretty hardcore. And yeah, in that race. Um, whilst all the carnage was unfolding, I pushed myself to a state of fatigue that I just couldn't come back from. And, and I ended up making some really silly decisions and put myself in a dangerous position on the boat. And um, you know, it was a long story, but I was inverted, broke a spreader, um, was trying to rectify the problem, put myself to leeward, trying to k- tighten up the, uh, the cap shroud and take out the slack that the, that the spreader was, was forcing through deflection. And a big wave hit the side of the boat, rolled it on its side, and my legs washed out from underneath me. And I had my arm around the the uh, vertical shroud, and I, my my hand was grasping the diagonal. And as my legs came out from underneath me, my arm slid down the narrowing of the V, and snapped my forearm in half. And I went in the water. And uh, and uh, you know, it's a bit tough to even remember it now and talk about it now. I didn't talk about it for a long time. And I hit the water, and my harness tether just jerked immediately and uh because i'd broken my arm in this crazy way i had pulled my arm into my stomach in like that sort of fetal position through the pain and my harness just ripped off me completely as i hit the water and it caught under my armpit of the broken arm and i think if i hadn't broken my arm i honestly feel my natural reaction would have been both hands to reach for the tether and my whole harness would have come off me no question so, um, so I remember being in the water and thinking, my God, you're in the water. And that's uh, number one, do not do for any so- solo sailor. It's the first thing you program into your mind. And I was uh, so shocked. And then I hesitated for just that small moment and uh, another wave hit the side of the boat and, and it sucked me underneath the boat. And uh, oh God, I remember it so clearly. I was so desperately trying to get to the surface and I was so struggling for air. It was a really difficult time and I ended up, inhaling water. And, um, and then I thought to myself, you, you die. I didn't, I didn't know if you could get that water out again, etc. And, um, and I gave up the struggle. And uh, the weight of, or the drag, I think, of my body under the boat and, and the way that my harness was bending from that sign or the tether was bending over that, over the leeward side, it bore the boat dead downwind, slowed it down. And uh, I surfaced and then the boat broached. And as it broached, it sort of leant right over and gave me the chance to scoop myself back on. And I was just vomiting out water and trying to get air in and all the rest. And it was just a pretty desperate time. I thought I was going to pass out, but uh, but I did, didn't. And and yeah, you you end up continuing on. But uh, I didn't continue on. I went to Gijón in Spain, and I was in hospital, broken arm and and um, the risk of secondary drowning in my lung. So I spent a bit of time in there, a trench foot as well, being a survival suit for so long. And uh, yeah, I was in a pretty bad way to be honest. But that was really, it was, really it, was, it was a period of enormous, deep self-pity. It was the first time, because I was running my own projects, with all my own sponsors, managing everything, and people had believed in you. And um, it was the first time I'd not been able to achieve what I'd set out to do. I think ever. And uh, I'd failed so so spectacularly in some sense. And I felt so down. And I remember getting out of hospital and going back to hotel, and uh, not wanting to check my emails or anything. And eventually, I did, and and um, I got an email from our Paralympic team, and they basically it said it said this is just before the 2000 games in Sydney, and they said you know basically cheer up, Precious. You know, you got your arm in plaster. Come and do the pre-Olympic regatta with us and we'll give you a disability rating because your arms in plaster. And that was a real wake up to me. And I went back to Australia and I, and I spent time in Rushcutters Bay with the team and more, I guess more precisely, spent a day helping men and women out of their wheelchairs and into their boats and just feeling so humbled by it and thinking I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And that was the decision to maybe have another go at the solo stuff.
0: I've heard you talk about mortality quite a lot, Nick, which is unusual for a pro sailor. How shaken were you by what happened you know, that, that night in the Bay of Biscay?
1: I was really, um, I think it happened really quickly. So it was definitely difficult to, to be overly concerned. You're in fight from its instantaneous reaction. Um, the aftermath obviously was wearing really heavily on me and you know i've said in my documentary i was really worried that i was going to be fearful of the ocean where i hadn't been previously and um that i felt i had a really strong affiliation with the ocean that maybe now fractured and for me that was really daunting because with surfing windsurfing whatever whatever i do even today it's all centered around the water and um and to lose that would be something that would redefine me and certainly reshape me, both emotionally and and uh, in my general day-to-day focus. So, um, yeah, I was I was I was quite concerned by that. Um, it was when it was later, I think, when I went back into solo sailing that I really felt the brunt. I really felt the aftermath of of the emotional scars. I think of that particular experience.
0: As you say, you weren't put off. You moved on to PlayStation with Steve. Fawcett, another massive name in the sport. I mean, you were a man in, in demand, Nick, trying to break the Jules Baron, the lap of the planet, the speed record around the world. And with a few aborted attempts, you know, what was it like sailing with Steve Fawcett?
1: Uh, like Steve, you know, is he, a crazy adventurer. And that was a really amazing campaign for us because even though we had the support of PlayStation, I haven't spent a lot of time in the corinthian format where the project's directed by an owner and that was very much the case for us Um, so steve was was financing the whole project and if we could justify a spend it would be spent and this was a package that was at the time it was the first ocean going multi-hole in excess 100 feet long to break oceanic speed records And we didn't know what we were doing. You know, as sailors, we were like, well, we'll work this out as we go. And it was pretty crazy. And, uh, you know, I, I remember, I remember some really scary scenarios on that boat. I remember steering along and doing massive nosedives in the middle of the night in North Atlantic. And, you know, you're on a 110 foot platform and half of it, the bow half is underwater to the front beam or the mid beam. And the rudders are like 30 feet in the sky. And everyone's falling about the place people are gripping onto the trampoline and all these sorts of scenarios and um it was a sketchy time but i really still feel it was one of the funnest times for sure trying to work out how to push that boat and uh knowing the risk it was really strange because we we didn't even have a life raft in the beginning of campaigning that thing and uh i remember it really clearly we didn't have a life raft we were all under the impression that uh if the boat broke up, bits of it would float because it didn't have a keel to drag it to the bottom. So you just go for the biggest bit, right? <laughs> and, and that would be your safety net. And uh, I remember a, like a three-man life raft came onto the boat, unbeknownst to anyone, just happened to appear. And uh, and Steve had sort of brought it on the boat, and I was I was saying to him, mate, you want to take up boxing lessons because. <laughs> It's every man for himself when it comes to a three-man life raft and there's 10 of us or whatever it might be. But um, yeah, it was a really, really cool time. And I remember Steve used to wake me up and just talk adventure. And uh, he was so passionate and um, and so so into it. And to be a man that, that had everything in life, his only enemy was time. And if we were doing a record and... and across the Atlantic fragments, taken, can broke the boat and weren't going to miss the record or fell out of a weather system. That would be agony for him the last six days on board, because it's time he's not progressing something else of his dreams or his goals. And I love that energy. I love that energy of like, you know, if money was no limit, what would you do? And he filled his life completely with ambition and goals. And he had this amazing aura about, let's do this, let's do that and, and push on. And And that was really, the really, Exceptional, and the, the big thing about that was the, the gratitude of sailing with that team. You know, the Brian Thompsons and Damien Foxes who we've mentioned before but so many other great people in that team. And that gave me big multi-hole experience and I had, uh, I had a really burning desire to do the Jules Verne record. I was so inspired by, m- more so about the Enza project because there was a video made about a documentary, and I'd wa- I've, I've watched that probably a thousand times. And, um, and I just wanted to experience what those guys experienced. But you need some form of, of access to that world, particularly given that it's French primarily. Um, and, and Steve and the team and that boat platform and what we did with it suddenly gave me some access to that world.
0: And then it came, the big one. You sailed on orange with French legend Bruno Perron. I mean, that was a different story, wasn't it? I mean, the only non-Frenchman on the boat from a crew of 13. Quite a punchy selection to take you. Why did Bruno want you?
1: It was um, it was interesting. I got a phone call um, from Bruno. I'd started sailing in the uh, the Amoka class, and I was getting some really good results in that uh, we had... Um, Kingfisher and we were winning all the Grand Prix's. Alan was taking a bit of a, bit of a spell. So I got to take the boat over. But when Bruno called me originally, he said he was putting together a really young French team and he was open to the idea of me coming and doing some coaching. And I remember hanging up the phone and going, coaching man, no way. I'm going all the way with you guys. And I was so, so desperate to be in that team. And it was difficult because I didn't speak the language. And it was, um, I certainly wasn't of the background of those that were on board, all Figaro champions and you know, very much um, from that um, upper echelon of French talent, even at young age, Sebastian Joss etc. It was just crazy. Jan Elias, all these guys were just like, wow. And uh, to their credit, they, they accepted me and, and allowed me to come in to that world. and. And allowed me to, to stand alongside them and also keeping in mind that French are pretty superstitious and I made number 13 in that crew so it wasn't an easy thing to sort of make happen and um, yeah I just I've, I'll be forever grateful and I talk a lot about the brotherhood of the teams that I've sailed around the world with and even the America's Cup etc and how those people are friends for life and you have great admiration for them forever and um, they're certainly a brotherhood that I, that I miss still. Memories are so strong. And uh, it was when I was, I was with Steve, you get addicted to speed records. And I, honestly, I could say I was addicted to speed records. And um, for me, I always identified that to be the one, the best oceanic sailing speed record available. And I remember seeing the trophy for the first time and honestly saying to myself, I'm putting my name on that trophy. And I did.
0: What was it like on board, not being able to speak the language? I mean, was that isolating?
1: I think it was isolating to a point. The biggest difficulty was that everybody learnt a lot quicker than you. Uh, Because you're developing all the time in terms of the learning processes on the boat. You know, techniques in how to, you know, manoeuvre the boat better, or, you know, sail trim, or make the boat go faster in general. Um, So not being in that, you know, you have that cluster of discussion and everyone's going, oh, what about this and what about that? Just not actually being in that loop was hard for me as someone who really thrives on learning. Um, But again, I will say they were so nurturing and so, um, yeah, just just nurturing. They looked after me. They fed me as much information as they could. Um, But, yeah, I think that was the difficult part. You really want to give your all to it and to be a little bit behind the eight ball and the learning aspect. But, you know, I was prim- primarily there as a driver and, um, and I, you know, I felt like I drove the boat to the best of my ability and we had some, you know, got top speed for the triple, yeah, that, that's nothing. I think Jill Curie might've beaten me on that in the end, but uh, I remember getting it, falling into this pit in the nighttime. And honestly, if I had, have, if it was daylight, I wouldn't have gone down this particular wave, but because it's pitch black, and this is this is again pacific southern ocean and ice field all the rest and we're doing probably on those boats you're doing 35 knots all the time and then this big trough was big i could feel the boat just dropping away from underneath me and you've sort of got the option to just head up a little bit and stay off and i bore away and just we just fell into this trough and and in the darkness the boat went completely underwater and then I think Jules Kiori screams out the hatch 41 point whatever, and uh, and I was like head down. You know, I could say I was driving the boat, but actually I was just hanging on knots <laughs> for the ride. We weren't really doing anything, but um, but yeah, that was uh, that was super super cool, and and uh, the memories, the camaraderie, the achievement, the achievement was so so intense. We didn't know, we, were, we had, if, if, in my book, I, I talk about it, but the base of the mast is like on a, it's rotating mast, so it's on like the toe ball of your car. And that was starting, the neck of it was starting to break. So we're like, whoa, you know, we've got a couple of tonne of rig and sails and everything above us. And we'd already broken the mast from the first attempt for that, for that journey, we'd broke the top mast off. And um, so we were a bit gun shy there anyway. So we had a big talk about it and... In the end, we're like, let's just keep going and what will be, will be. And then even the night before we crossed the line, we nearly capsized. We were hit by a massive gust, boat heeled over, and fortunately, the Jenica sheet broke. Or else we probably could have gone over. And uh, so we were never, ever, we had 64 days of living by the minute and knowing that anything can happen the next minute. And to finish with such enormous relief. Enormous relief. And, and then to finish in France, where everyone goes berserk, right? So that was a really crazy experience.
0: What's it like, I guess, racing the clock? I mean, how hard a challenge is it to nurse you know, a thoroughbred boat that size round the planet whilst also pushing for the record? What does that, what does that need? Uh,
1: and I think, I think that's something that, um, that Bruno Peyron was uh, really excellent in terms of teaching us. Um, He obviously was the first man to put his name on the Jules Verne record. And for me, that was like, my God, I'm signing with a king, you know? And I absolutely admire that guy. He taught me so much about leadership, so much about nurturing boats. And actually, in a humble sense, we left and he was very open to us about, we want to beat this record, we don't want to demolish it. And I thought that was respectful to the record. Um, and you want to sort of, records really only mean something to you if people want to break them. And in some respect, you know, I'm still the only person to windsurf across Bass Strait. And, and I ask myself, why is that? Is it because of the difficulty, there's been three challenges, but which haven't succeeded. But is it the difficulty? Or do people not really respect it for what it is and they go, oh, it's not even a record or whatever. But but it, there seems to be a reasonable amount of interest in it. But I'm like, well, w- what is it? And when you set records, you have to be super, super um, mentally strong in a way that that record can go the next day and you had your moment and you accept that and you move on. And Bruno was really adamant that we would just do our best to get around. And he drummed into us that it is win, lose or draw just to get around is a feat in itself and we believed that completely so all we really thought about was just getting to the other end and um and we bruno was really hectic on board he had a lot going on from a business perspective running the project from the nav and weather and the, and everything that goes into keeping us safe and trying to break the record and you didn't see a lot of him my bunk was right next to the nav station so i saw a lot of him but whenever we were out of control which was Pretty often in those boats, particularly in the Southern Ocean, as before we knew it, before we actually knew we were out of control, he'd put his wet weather gear on, his harness on, and as soon as the situation got critical, he appeared like a fairy and just grabbed the helm, laid down the command, and got the situation back on, back in control immediately. And that for me was absolutely amazing. His skill and and knowledge and ability to do that, but um, yeah. I remember getting, I remember getting the, the trophy, and um, for us it was in a ceremonial format at the Paris Boat Show, and uh, we all turned up. Philip Pichet couldn't make it; he was in Australia, but he was the only one missing from the team. We we're all there in a uniform, and having said to myself, "I'm going to put my name on that trophy." It's on the base; everyone's names on the base, and. Um, And this is quite a few years later. It was 1995 when I said that to myself, and here we were in 2002. So I was there, they give you black silk gloves. You're all shoulder to shoulder with your teammates and your brothers. And the the trophy itself is this chrome canoe body that suspends on a magnetic field. So it's opposing magnetic forces that makes, makes this thing hover in space. And it's super long. I'm not sure exactly how long it is, but it's a couple of meters long. So the whole thing's striking. The base is there in front of us with a black silk sheath, sh- silk sheath over it and the security guards take the hull out of this case, bring it towards you, you reach out with your black silk gloves, take the hull in one hand each, you walk towards the base and you lower your hand until the hull starts to hover in space on the magnetic forces and then you move your hand back and as you do, black silk sheet drops off the base and my name was right in front of me and it was just so so emotional so and it was actually without a word of a lie i went back that night to the hotel and i put in the end in my book because i had been writing it all that time and that was closure yeah.
0: what a moment you you did demolish the record in the end 64 days i mean that record had stood for five years
1: yeah we, we knew there was a lot more in it as well um but it's luck you know, uh we could have we could've had so much more damage, you know, we could have had so many more better weather systems. Um but we yeah, we were we, we felt so fortunate, so fortunate to finish and so grateful to have played a part of history. And I think that's one of um that's one of the things that, you know, here I am now at fifty and and boats are foiling and everything's pretty wild and and I can really feel comfortable in sitting back and going, you know, I had my window. And, uh, and in some cases, I look at a few boats and I'm like, you can have that, you know. Um, well, and truly beyond that, in terms of uh, what I'm prepared to risk or commit or whatever. And I feel like at points we pioneered. I really do feel we pioneered in some areas of, particularly a big multi-hole staff, etc. And to have that moment where you are the fastest in the world around the world non-stop that's pretty cool you know and uh i remember the first ever record sailing speed record that i got was um with toshiba on our way to the start of the whitbread we had a bit of a mock race with chessy racing and we diverted kp diverted us to this system for the slingshot which you do and um we hooked in and just went for it and um we sailed 434 nautical miles, I think it was, in 24-hour period. And I remember coming off watch after that was over and getting in my bunk and thinking, wow, we've gone further in a 24-hour period than any other monohull yacht in history. And that, was, that really, really meant something to me. And every other record since has really had that, that feeling of like we've just done something that no one else has ever done. And there's something special about that.
0: Reading your bio, Nick, it's, it's full on. Every year, there's a new challenge, a new sponsor. But by 2002, you were part of the famous Offshore Challenge stable with Elle MacArthur and Mark Turner. I mean, they were exciting times. A real professional feel to it all. I mean, how much did that feel like you were trailblazing in the sport?
1: That was a really interesting uh, one. Um, Mark met me in 1997 At the end of the Whitbread race, and he had met with a couple, a few of us out of that race actually, and was starting to talk about the mini Transat. And I said, "Oh, okay, I'm interested." And then, as it turned out, I was the only one out of that group that turned up. And um, and I think Mark saw a bit of um, had a bit of belief in that. I was also had a had a you know involvement with an organisation in Australia where we're building boats and. And you know, we're doing international 2.4s for the Olympic sailors, etc. So there was a lot. I was doing a lot that sort of reflected what Mark wanted to do with what would ultimately become what offshore challenges and then OC sport. So we had a lot of um, mental parallels where it was very much about business, and it was not so much about the fraternity or the establishment. So what I mean, what I mean by that is not yacht clubs. Not federations. We would create um, objective packages, so goals for myself and Alan and Sam Davies and several other great sailors that have been in that team. Um, and we would present them the business case to a partner, and we would try and deliver for them from a return on in, an investment perspective. And along the way, get to achieve what we want to do from a sporting or dreams perspective. Um, and I remember having a um, you know a surf shop in Australia and thinking to myself all we do in selling surfboards with offshore challenges or OC Sport we sell dreams and it's a hell of a harder to do that um, so yeah so Mark and I really started in 97 met Alan in 98 and um, well, I actually met Alan in 97 um, where she was she was in the dockside cabin on near. she was tied up with the silk cut guys who were looking after her in that race we went over a few beers and met her and um, and the connection just grew and grew and grew um, and I was equally inspired by both of those people, still am today. Uh, Mark from the professional aspect and so many other attributes and, um, and Alan from a pure engaging and uh, inspiring perspective. So I was very fortunate that I was doing the race with PlayStation 2000, Alan was doing the Vonde Globe at the same time. We finished both, I'd broken my leg during the race, but I went to rehab, came back and um, took over Kingfisher. Ellen was obviously in another level of stardom. At that point, you know, fame was really starting to take hold. And um, and her time was pulled, um, so I got to take over the boat. And um, and then we grew from there. And I think, so Mark and I did the Transit Jacques Vabre together in 2001, after we had a very successful um, time in t- 2000 and 2001 with Kingfisher. And I skippered the boat to the victory in the EDS Atlantic Challenge, which was an 8,000-mile race over two months, and there was a lot going on. Mark and I finished third in the Transat Shack Barb that year. And I was sort of like, oh, you know, I still want to, I want to go do my thing, you know? And um, and the big business vision probably wasn't really me. And um, Mark said, well, what about if we create a team? And in 2002, that's when Offshore Challenger Sailing Team really took hold, and Ellen and I were, were leading that team. and part of the idea around that was to combine our partnerships. Um, so in fact, you know, our sponsors back in those days, BT, Renault, et cetera, were getting two for one in some respect. And um, we could help each other, back each other up, corporate sailing, speaking presentations, all these sorts of things. And it worked very, very well and we were able to grow the business. And I look back on that and, and, um, it and it's pretty remarkable when you think of what was achieved and you know in the term of that business and you know there's literally you know over a hundred million us dollars worth of sponsorship funding going into sport and primarily into sailing i'm not sure how many other organizations have done that from a commercial perspective um, so that's something that i feel pretty proud of to be a part of but that comes with an enormous amount of responsibility and we knew that and i could say my carefree sailing days were Decimated during that period. The inten- intensity was really high. Because I've come from a really pretty simple, well, very simple values-based family unit, um, I, you know, I, I, I've always felt enormous debt to anyone that it has supported me in any way, particularly financially. So I wore the responsibilities super heavy. I would never have had the funding or the money to do what I. Things I got to do, and and I felt like I had to work that extra bit harder to make sure that the sponsors were happy. And I still like that today, hundred percent, still like that today. And I remember my sister; she works in um, social welfare, and and she's a great, great inspiration for me more than she'll ever know. And she makes a difference in life. You know, she literally picks people up from the darkest, darkest depths of the pits of their lives, and. And helps them through drug addiction and alcoholism and all these sorts, of broken families all these sorts of things and for me that's really making a genuine difference in life and she's seen enormous struggle and i remember when i was campaigning for the vonday globe and she asked me how much we were looking for and i told her she she just went that's disgusting you know when you talk about the, the level of, of funding and um and i remember being on the phone call and thinking you're right you know that is pretty crazy to put into sport. And we all know that this is another topic altogether, and there's money in sport and what, where the value is, etc. But I remember it being a bit of a grounder for me and me thinking, yeah, do I belong here in, a, in this money and in this circle? I'm going to work my butt off for, for this opportunity, and, and I'll never forget the value of it, and I'll never forget my responsibility towards it. You know, you can have a bad day on the water. This was a bad couple of months. I was so remote, nobody could get to me, and my life raft wasn't an option. We ended up in a massive hull-fly gust situation and we landed on top of their boat and fortunately we didn't kill anyone.
0: The ultimate goal was for you at that time Nick, the solo non-stop Vendee Globe. What was the lure of the Vendee?
1: <laughs> it's quite strange because I never really wanted to do the Vendee Globe. <laughs> I wanted to do the Five Oceans um, in reality because I felt that race really suited me. I felt like I could push and I could pit stop. And that was more along my nature, was the ability to just go hard for 20 days at a time. And I had, uh, had a really fabulous uh, route to run race. So I knew that that threshold for me was comfortable. Um, the whole idea of not being able to stop and repair or being completely... Um, an unassisted event for me that was high risk really high risk you know something so small could actually undo an enormous amount of work and an enormous amount of money etc so um so I wasn't really um overly drawn to it particularly not like the French guys were but then obviously Alan was super inspiring um you know what Mike Golding was the first person i ever saw finish the race in the sardelon super super inspiring and his speech at the end of that was was something that that, that rings in my ears and um, and i i started to develop a love for it and uh, i do see it as one of the most difficult challenges on offer in the sport of sailing full stop if you take the mental Effort that it takes to do that race beyond the physical, beyond the sailing, the mental element is crazy. The risk is so high, and uh, the isolation and all these things. So I think then it started to come to me and saying, "Okay, well, the America's Cups, the, the Pinnacle, and the Jules Verne's the Pinnacle, and all these other things that pin- I've got to do the Pinnacle," you know. And uh, oh, it was such a such a difficult time for me. I think from the beginning and. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a great race. That's, it that haunts me today. And in fact, I've often described that race as my worst ever sporting performance or worst ever sporting race, but unfortunately that race went for 80 days. You know, you can going have a bad day on the water. This was a bad couple of months and uh, not, nothing was really going my way.
0: I'll ask you about the race in a second, but fans of the podcast will know well that the Day start day is right up there for me as one of the sport's most dramatic occasions. And I say sport in the very broadest sense. I'm including all sporting occasions in that. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people. In winter, the weather is always somehow dramatic. And you leave the port out through the famous canal to head off around the world. When you take yourself back there to that day, Nick, what was that moment like?
1: I can't take myself all the way back there because I'd be in tears, and that's genuine. It was so heavily emotional. Um, and I think it's the, it's the unknown, that's something. Um, I, yeah, I, uh, I have an amazing, genuine appreciation for the support that the French give us. When you compete at that level in France, you're a superstar, it's crazy. And I was living in the country at the time. I remember as route to rum. For argument's sake, I was living in Saint Malo, and the race starts in Saint Malo. And I thought to myself, if I don't win this race, I'm not allowed back. Um, it, it was uh, it was full on, and I remember getting up that morning. And um, the night before, we had a press con- had a, a presentation to the public. The night before, which was really intense because you've got so many things that you want to do, and one primary thing is rest, uh, eat, say a, a, a really you know strong goodbye to your team and gratitude to your team and your sponsors and you want to get some rest and everything's disrupted because you're pulled everywhere and it's crazy and there's thousands of people you can't even get from the hotel to the boat and it's chaos and um people were camping on the canal the night before and our hotel was near the canal and it was just like trumpets going on all night and all this chaos so i remember waking up on the start day and um and opening the door and the hall outside the door was uh, full of flowers and soft toys and bottles of wine and all sorts of gifts that people had left at the hotel knowing that i was staying there in the month prior and then getting the lift and going downstairs and the lift doors opening and the, at reception and the whole staff had turned up in the morning at like five in the morning or whatever it was to give me their farewell and that was really really full on I'm on the phone going to uh, Johnny Hildebrand and the team. Come and get me, come and get me. And I knew it was just chaos outside. There's like literally thousands of people outside the hotel. And, uh, you know, I'm feeling like David Beckham, you know. But but I, I was so focused, I just got to get on the boat. And um, the boys are like, we can't get to you, you can't get to you, there's too many people. So they had to get police escort to come to get the van to the hotel. And I'm in the van and people are banging on the van. and. It was just mad. And I remember getting, then you get to the dock and you're going through these crowds of people and it's just yelling and screaming and, and all, this, uh, all this sort of uh, emotion. And um, get to the dock and it's just silence. You drive into the compound, open the door, you can hear this rumble in the, in the perimeter, which is the activity of the spectators and it's dark. And, um, and then you walk down the dock and it's just silence. And everyone's really, this is it. We're gonna, <laughs> we're to try and sail around the world on our own, and that is like, wow, that was pretty heavy. And as much as you sort of think you prepare for it, are you ever? I wasn't. I know that for sure. I wasn't prepared for it, and it was really, that was a really, really heavy day. But so, such a fond memory of the support. But it's, it's, it's a, it's a really. Definite heart-sinking moment when you think, okay, now we're going to go and do it. This is it. All the training, all the practice, and everything. All the all the work, it starts today.
0: You had a, a tough one day, Nick. You know, the mother of all storms. You know, how bad was it? Was it?
1: Yeah, the storm in the Indian for me was. Um, it was. Uh, it was one of those circumstances, and I, I think a lot about it and i wonder you know i ask myself was i not strong enough and what would i have done differently and all the rest of it and i keep ending up at the same place it was really out of scale you know and it's, when we mentioned antarctica it's only a couple of weeks ago i was back in the southern ocean and um and i and i do feel like i've seen a lot of storms and that really went to another level. It's something that I'd never seen before and never seen again and so I asked myself time and time again, was it over amplified because I was on my own? Yes, it possibly was, but the reality is it was what it was and uh and I was out of control and and i was um you know I was at a at a uh a depth of fear that i had never never experienced before and and i was I was buckled by that fear definitely. And I, and I honestly I honestly thought I was going to die, there's no question. I was completely convinced that I was going to die. And, and I look now and I think about how can you fight off that emotion and I allowed myself to get too deep in fear and to a point where I kept thinking to myself, how, do I, how am I going to die? Am I going to drown? Am I going to get hypothermia? They were the only two things that I could think of, but I was adamant that I was going to die. And I remember sharing that with Mark Turner and him working with me on trying, down the sat phone, trying to encourage me to drink and eat and stay on top of my energy levels and keep bailing the water because it was taking a lot of water inside the boat. And um, and uh, I just worked and worked and worked on trying to fight for so long that I just ran out of energy and um, started to just think, I'm going to die. I'm not going to be able to fend off this water ingress and I'm not going to be able to um, find a pattern in which the boat can be safe. I tried going fast and was just doing huge nosedives dives at the bottom of these faces and, and, and then the boat would broach and lay on its side and then the white water would hit the boat and roll the boat upside down. So, so much was happening. And then when I was slowing down, so I tried fast and then when I tried slow, just the force of the white water hitting the boat was, was you know, it was like a truck slamming into the side of the boat. So I'm there convinced that the boat is going to structurally fail and that I'm going to end up in the water and and um, and you know we talk about survival tools I had my satellite phone and that was all I had really had survival suit and that flares meant nothing to me my epirb meant nothing to me because I was so remote and nobody could get to me and my life raft in those conditions wasn't an option so I remembered thinking that this was it to the point where I made that phone call to home and said to my dad that I'm going to die here. And that was pretty full on, for sure. And, uh, and I think back at and think, wow, why did I do that? Why did I do that? But I will stand by it today. Absolutely stand by it today. That was the right thing for me to do. And I think of how I managed myself. Emotionally, I didn't manage myself very well. Um, but I gave, I gave it everything I could in the circumstances.
0: How hard was it? dealing with all of that on your own, I mean, how, how vulnerable did that make you? It
1: was uh, incredibly di- difficult to deal with on my own. And I think primarily because I like to feel like um, in the team environment, um, when it goes bad, that I'm one of those guys that will lift, you know? And I couldn't lift myself. I just couldn't uh, find it within myself to, um, to believe, I think. And um, even though I was, I was fighting, and I didn't want to die, um, that, um, yeah, I just couldn't, I couldn't, you know, if I was in a scenario with a team, I would start saying, hey, think of this, let's do this. You know, look at all the positives, and, um, and work together and share ideas together as to how we're gonna get through this. And, um, and I'd run out of ideas on my own. And I think that's why I'll always um, feel so appreciative of being at sea with a team now because of that um, that ability to help each other emotionally. And you know, ideas and learning and all the rest. But uh, yeah, it's tough. I think that's the hardest thing in the solo stuff. For me was that, that particular storm. And the loneliness. You know, as you probably, <laughs> listeners have probably worked out by now, I love chatting, so. And, uh, and, and and that, you know, 80 days at sea on my own was a really difficult thing to do. And, and leaving the, for the start of that race, the forecast was maybe, for me, 100 days at sea on my own. and um. And uh, that was really daunting. And there was another element to that race that I struggled with. And that was that um, in order to finish that race, would be place me as the first person to sail the Whitbread or the Volvo Ocean Race or the Ocean Race in, in its entirety, The Jules Verne, held the Jules Verne record, and to finish the Vendee Globe. And that was 10 years of work. And um, I left thinking, just finish. You know, I'm in an, I mean, an an older generation boat, um, but we had everything that we needed. Um, But I felt like I wasn't racing. I felt like I was just just trying to finish. And for somebody who's really about breaking records or racing, that was hard, really hard to do. And um, and I struggled with that. I struggled with the feeling that I wasn't competitive. And in the Southern Ocean, I sort of started to come up with some small goals and I was like, okay, I want to be the fastest solo sailor from from Cape Good Hope to Cape Horn and fastest solo sailor along the bottom in that race. And um, went into my first little storm and broke some bits and said, no, no, back off. Don't be silly. Back off. And then the second storm came, which was the, the big one. And then after that, I was pretty destroyed emotionally. And I was just like, just, let's just get to the other end. And the racing element was gone. And that was difficult.
0: How did your Vendée end, Nick?
1: It's strange, but my Vendee Globe ended beautifully for me. And if people that don't know the full story would hear me say that, they go, "Well, what do you mean your keel fell off? 80 days at sea with 15 days to go, and um, and that I was in seventh place, I think it was at the time, and um, was so focused on the finish, I don't didn't believe that I could finish the race until I'd rounded Cape Horn, and that was day 70, I think, and I was looking at my 20th transatlantic crossing to get to Les Abdelon from Cape Horn, and I'm like, I can finish this. And I started to believe for the first time ever. And you get out of Cape Horn, it's such a relief. Every mile gets warmer, you get safer, there's fishing boats and all these things that can save you in, 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 the, in, in the case of a problem and I was really starting to fall into the rhythm and enjoyment of the race. And then, you know, I I had a collision with a, I think a wooden crate in the dark um, a couple of days before the keel actually failed. And um, we feel like that um, had certainly something to do with it. But I think I had a problem with the keel right in the early stages. And I think it was also a problem in the storm, playing with stability in the storm. That's why I was having such a problem and spending a lot of time on my ear. And um, yeah, and the keel just, I was trying to get around a high pressure system. It was working out perfectly for me. I found the new breeze. I'd stacked the boat, locked myself away, made a phone call for um, to home and saying, hey, I found the wind, this is all good. And then literally five minutes later, bang, the keel breaks and fall over on our side. And I'm in the dark. I'm super tired, didn't know what was happening. And then um, the race was over from that part of the race was over. And why I say my finish was beautiful was because I was taken to Rio and all the rest of it, and that was another story. We shipped the boat back to the UK, we fixed it, we got the boat back to Brazil, I went to where the keel fell off and then I sailed back to the Sabdalon ten months later. And we talked about it internally. And with Scandia and everybody else with, with OC Sport or Offshore Challenges, everyone was like, what do we do now, what do we do now? And I said, you know what, I just want to do everything we can to end that circle, to finish it. And um, we talked about it and how it, it, we didn't want it to detract from those that had finished. I wasn't finishing the Vendee, you know, it's a non-stop race. Um, but for us, it completed the circle. So we all agreed and it was quite a, it was a really energetic agreeance. And um, we went back and I sailed that last bit and we didn't want to talk about it because we didn't want to try and look like we were trying to get something from it. In fact, we wanted to keep it really quiet. I remember coming in towards Le Sabdillon and this fishing boat's coming towards me and it's beat, he's sounding his horn and all the rest of it and I'm thinking, oh my God, I've got 30 miles to go and I'm going to get hit by a fishing boat. And the guy comes very close and the fisherman's hanging out the uh, door with a newspaper. And I'm thinking, he's something's happened. Something political's happened and, or something major news has happened and he's just letting me know. And... Um, sure enough it was me on the front page of that newspaper and I didn't know and I got closer to the coast and all these boats are out it was twilighting all these yachts are out off Les Abdelon and and I'm thinking oh they're doing twilight race and hopefully I don't get in their way sure enough I start sailing towards what would have been the finish line and all these boats turned and started to come with me and uh, you yeah, know, it was full on thousands of people on the dock in, in Les Abdelon and I actually felt like I got a better reception than if I had to finish the race, you know. So it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. And uh, and I am so grateful for every person that that saw it for what it was, you know. That we were just trying to do our thing, and we weren't trying to, weren't trying to finish the Vendée or anything else. And that was cool, really cool.
0: When you look back at your Vendée, what do you think?
1: Uh, I, I, when I look. Back on the Vondel, I keep asking myself, "Could I do it? Could I go back and finish what I didn't finish?" You know, um, and so often that answer is no, and it's, that's that realistic element of like it's not I'm not built for that race. Um, and I think all the time about how can I make amends? How can I make amends to what that was in terms of um, in terms of it being a, again one of those things that I didn't uh, I didn't i didn't finish and for me not finishing the mini transat i felt like i made amends by winning my class in the route to rum and that was like bang you know that was the that was redemption and um with the vonde globe there's uh there's no real redemption for that really and and i look for it in other ways and i'm like okay so i'm not a very good um i wasn't very good on that course, and that was all me. I've got no one else to blame for my performance in that race, and that's hard to swallow. Um, I had everything that I needed from a support side, from a sponsorship side, from everything else. had a great boat, and I just wasn't good enough to to give what I needed to give. And then I think, okay, do I need to, if I did, say, the Figaro or something along those lines, and if I got a good result there, would that make amends for me? And I, I think about that a lot.
0: Well, just after the Vendée and Offshore Challenges was branching out all over the place, wasn't it? And we saw the beginnings of the Extreme Sailing series. I was involved helming for a few seasons, and you read a few moments together, I think, Nick. I mean, in some pretty sketchy locations, it was so full on, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was crazy, to be honest. And I remember the conversation we had when we first, as a company, decided to do that. and. Uh, and I was involved in the initial, sort of, conception of the idea and uh, and then Mark and uh, John McKenna took on the, the, the whole concept and what it would look like. And I remember, you know, Amsterdam was a classic and we even had a crash in Amsterdam, but uh, but it was crazy. Some of the venues we were going to and it was all about this stadium sailing thing and the balance between... Um, I guess racing integrity and uh, and um, you know, the sporting integrity element of it, and giving what we could to spectators, and we had some really extreme experiences. It was it was pretty crazy. Um, it was pretty amazing to see that that event go on for so long, and um, and it, it, it I think it it's a uh, it's a testament to it to see um, other events now resembling it not copying it or whatever else, but resembling it and seeing the value in it. Cell GP obviously is one that that um, does resemble it. It's obviously a very different beast, but um the, the theory behind it is very similar. Um, so it was it was pioneering, I do think. Um, it was well one it wasn't so much pioneering, but it was actually making it happen. We had the various other classes try it before and um, and it was a flash in a pan type scenario or it lasted a couple of years and then it was gone. But I think it was 13 years that the Extreme Sailing series went on for, and uh, that's pretty, pretty lengthy, year after year, particularly from its first period as a, a European event, which is relatively sustainable, to an international event that was pretty difficult to sustain um, financially. But wow, what a project. And you know I've got good, good and bad memories with that one for sure.
0: It felt so on the edge. I guess even sailing the boats, all of us were right at the beginning of of the learning curve. And for me, I mean, I'd come from a, a yingling that did three knots, and here I was, you know, steering this massive catamaran. I remember on one occasion, out here in Cowes, wind against tide, there was nowhere to go, and my tactician, Chris Mayne, yelled at me, just effing send it. And so I did and I wiped out both your rudders and left you spinning round and round in circles. I mean, but those kind of moments happened in every race. What's your memories of those early days in those boats? The
1: early days was uh, was, was crazy. You know, when you look look at where it ended up and actually where Sail GP is now for argument's sake and the safety parameters that are built into that. Um, we were without helmets, we were out with any no body armor or anything of the like spare air or any of these things we'll give a knife and that was it um, so yeah it was pretty crazy and particularly when we were taking the um, sort of the the VIP slot on board the boat and bringing a guest into the heat of the moment for me when you reflect on that that's like wow that was pretty full on and we actually had a, a you know a, a one of the senior members of BT go over off the boat in in Kiel and we are leading the race at the time, so he, it's coming into the bottom mark, he's in the water. We've got the whole fleet coming in on opposite jibes to round that bottom mark. And we've, we've gone around the mark, because that's what we're programmed to do. And then we've parked, and we're yelling at everybody coming into the mark, there's a man in the water, there's a man in the water. And then the, uh, the rib came in, picked him up, we finished the race, and everyone said, what'd you stop for? And we go, oh, because we had a man overboard. Didn't you see him? And they didn't see him at all. So then we went to fluorescent coloured helmets and things like that that were you know, sort of bringing some safety margin into it. But it was pretty full on when you think of, of uh, what, what, how we carved it out was, uh, was pretty radical.
0: Unsurprisingly, though, Nick, having been on that worldwide treadmill for much of your life, burnout became a reality. It all took its toll, and you ended up in Sri Lanka. How did all that come about, and, and why? When, when people
1: ask me how why I needed a break, and I and I and I will say, you know, I I, I was sick of being wet, um, and I was I was sick of myself. The media side of things for me has been a really difficult thing to do. Um, the self promotion element, all the rest of it, is you know, a lot of people think that that comes easy, but it certainly doesn't. And um, and that took its toll. I, I was really, really wanting to get away. Starting a young family, and I was I was home for for five days a month for nine months of the year. and then I would get three months off to go to Australia and spend that time with the family. So um, that was really hard. and um, and I yeah, I, I needed a break. And then I was sort of, I went into surf spots to take a, a break at a surf shop in Australia. And then I got into stand-up paddleboarding to fulfill that competitive urge. And I had some okay successes in, in that sport and did the Molokai race and all the rest of it. So that was a great time for me. But I was dabbling, I was still dabbling, went to Hong Kong and broke the Round Hong Kong Island record and all these sorts of things that I was doing on a side. But it all sort of ended up with a massive crash with uh, Frank Kamas in Singapore. And that really, uh, that really hit me hard um the there was a lot that went into that and rightly or we were we were it was a windward leeward scenario we were leeward boat so from a ruling sense it was you know who, who was in the right who was in the wrong it was completely irrelevant to what happened we ended up in a massive hull flyer gust situation and we landed on top of their boat and and um fortunately we didn't kill anyone and we tore their mast out and literally platform on top of platform and um, and I remember I'd been working in business and a few other things, not sailing as much as I should have and not feeling as sharp as I should have been and thinking to myself, how much of that led to this collision? How much of me having the distance and dropping in and out of the sport at that level led to this collision? And um, And I still ask myself the question today, but fortunately no one was killed and i and i don't say that lightly it was horrific situation and um and i feel like we got off all got off extremely lucky but at the end of that event i went that's it you know i'm not going to dabble with this if you're playing this game you're in or you're out and i felt you you know you can go into other stuff and i felt that that was super important i'd lost the love for this for sailing as well um and i the vonda globe i think tore that from me. I had days at sea where I, where the silence was screaming and I hated the sound of the motion of the boat and I hated the feel of the motion of the boat. So a lot of things I needed to let sit for a while. And um, and then we, we bought a family cruising boat and that was something that I'd been putting off forever because I'm like, no way, too much like work. And, uh, and actually uh, we had it in Hong Kong and People don't really know Hong Kong. The northeast of Hong Kong is really beautiful. And, um, and you know any other city and the water's clean and all the rest of it's another part of the world. It looks like the Philippines. And um, I fell in love with it immediately. And the memories we've built with the kids on that boat are the best memories I have about my time with them. And I realized in sailing that boat that I actually just genuinely love sailing genuinely love sailing and sometimes the sporting element would maybe strip that away a little bit. So I thought to myself, well, why, why, why move away from it if you actually genuinely love it? So I enjoyed the cruising part for a few years and then Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka was something that it still is. I'm a resident of Sri Lanka still and we still have our home there. But it was, um, it was a way to escape from everything for me. Um, and I, I could just, be no one. I know that sounds weird, but nobody in Sri Lanka had clue about sailing. We never talk about it. You know, some of my best mates. You know, like like Glen Ashby. You know, he's a he's one of the best known sailors in the world. But he and I go windsurfing or camping. We won't talk about sailing at all. And um, and I loved that environment. And and I love my surfing, obviously. And Sri Lanka's is off the scale. So I had I remember even two years ago, I had five months of surfing twice a day. And for me that was a bucket list item in some respect and I got the ticket and it was pure and it was, was, was different. But, but then the urge comes back.
0: Yeah, ultimately you've made the decision to come back to the sport. I guess why and, and what was the draw and, and how are you finding it?
1: Why is because I feel like it, um, even in my 50s I've got so much to give still. I think that's, you know, so much to do. I don't feel like I've completely written myself off, but I really believe that the sport is um, so so mental. So if you have the motivation and the the drive, you're a threat. And and I feel like I lost that for a period, and I certainly feel like I have that back. Um, I've got a really strong focus on a couple of elements. Obviously, I'd love adventure, um, but if I look at my career, um, if you will, I didn't campaign towards the Olympics, and that's something that really I think the mixed double-handed offshore medal is obviously a real, it's a real inspiring goal, I, I guess, and that, that comes to me in many different ways. Um, my kids live in my kids live in France, and the slightest opportunity to represent Australia in Olympic Games in their country in Paris 2024 is just too too amazing to even refuse the ability, the, the option to try. My father was a rower and um, he had the chance to campaign towards the Olympics. And he never did, he started a family. And I know that that bore heavily on him. And, and I remember promising him at some point in my life that I would try. And um, in some ways, it's if I could get to the Olympic Games in that discipline, and if I could, through whatever gifts and magic, get a medal, gold, hopefully, then that would certainly put amends to the von der Globe. It would complete me in so many ways. And, um, and I, I, know that's a mountain to climb, but it's what I'm inspired by it. And that's, that's an, an important thing. And I, and I'm, and I, I think at my age to have experienced what I've experienced, to be so fired up about something, um, in sport, um, from, from a competitor's perspective is, it's pretty awesome
0: back on the self-promotion circus that goes with, goes with the territory, this time in your 50s with a ton of experience, but the weight of trying to be relevant again, I guess, to potential partners, how hard are you finding it?
1: Uh, well, that's where, yeah, I, I, I find it really difficult. There's no question. And I know that a lot of my friends that I've had in the sport that maybe don't have to live and die by corporate partnerships, I know that they, they struggle with it. I remember even going to Antarctica, and you know, having I think sending a picture of my equipment, and there was a lot of Zyke clothing there, and um, someone saying, "Jeez, loans are your travelling billboard," you know. But that's reality, and um, and I am super grateful. You know, in fact, I actually have a real position on it, and I've worked from a hosting perspective with um, with. You know, pre- presenting on behalf of events and interviewing owners of boats, etc. And I remember doing an interview with a guy in Melbourne. He had top performed boat of the day. And I remember going down with the camera crew and I had asked him to give us, you know, hey, how'd you go today? Tell us a little bit about it. And he told me to F off. And I was shocked, absolutely shocked. And I thought to myself, what does that do for the sport? And I was I felt like here that there was a huge failure and I feel that corporate sponsorship brings so much to the sport in the way that yeah opportunity for sailors to do some cool things it brings money into you know like in Marsat's support of the OBR in the in the ocean race like we are living that race in crazy crazy imagery and content and um, and without that we don't have it and by me and anyone else who's Who's corporately funded? We're forced to go and knock on the door of a a magazine or a newspaper or to do that interview or whatever, Um, and that strengthens the sport. Absolutely strengthens the sport. Now, if you're in a scenario where you're not your wealthy boat owner and you know that's a fabulous position to be in, but you have no obligation to say, you know, do interviews for Sydney Hobart race or whatever you're talking not talking to an audience that doesn't sail and the option to talk to an audience that does sail. some of the best you know opportunities i've had is new science magazine and all these diverse you know, publications that are really speaking to an audience it's not yachting in any way shape or form and that's good for our sport and that trickles down to every to the yacht clubs you know the gurnard yacht club or every any junior yacht club around the country so um so i think it's all positive i really do and um and for me it's 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 that or nothing. Do
0: you have any regrets, Nick? I mean, things that you wish that you'd said yes to, or perhaps hadn't said yes to.
1: I don't think I've got any regrets. I, um, I know that there's a lot of roads that I could have taken that would have been very different. When you're in your mid-twenties and you've done two America's Cups, and you know that you can stay in that cycle and make good money, and um and just continue on and every cup cycle if you do a good job that one you in demand for the next and the price is higher and you know i certainly uh i certainly could be living in a bigger house that's for sure but um but um i think i think because i've always been honest and i think that's something that i really have some self-pride in is that i followed my heart absolutely genuinely followed my heart and i didn't Care about what the consequences were. I, I went off the the Whitbread Round the World Race on good money, so well looked after from a um, shore support and team perspective, to living on a 21-foot-long boat with no money, eating baguettes and bananas, and trying to achieve a goal that was a dream. And you know, not many people would do that. And uh, and I think I'm, I think, <laughs> I think sometimes I probably. I probably should have taken the cup money, but, I, but I, I, I'm proud of myself in some ways for being true to myself and true to my heart.
0: And when you look back on all of that and a lot more, what's the best thing out of it?
1: I think the best thing out of it is, um, is living a life well lived. And I think we definitely get to points in our lives, particularly as we get older, and we go, what did I do? And uh, when I reflect on the energy that I've put into my life, and I don't really like talking about career because it doesn't hasn't felt like a career. We've just been having a good time, right, and doing what we what we desperately love to do. And um, and I, I feel like I've jammed it in. I feel like I've um, I've been pretty full on in the way that I've utilized my life. And um, I think that's the the, the thing that I'm happy about, about most. Am I proud about it? I, I'm not sure, they're not two different things, but I'm certainly happy about that. And I'm so, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, just so glad that I've been pretty full on. And I still feel like I've got a fair bit of intensity to come.
0: Nick Maloney, it's been a pleasure, thank you.
1: Thank you, Shirley, thank
0: you very much. He's such a good communicator. One of the sport's great storytellers. I love Nick's honest style of communication. I could listen to him talk about his experiences all day. Over two hours. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a roller coaster for sure. We love your feedback and it's important in the podcast world. So please let me know what you think and review and subscribe on whatever platform you're joining us on. As ever, the podcast is produced by Tim at Vertigo Films. Huge thanks for all this hard work and for, well, just being brilliant. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening and stay safe, everyone. This is Castle One. just One, Ray for speaking. speaking. Pastor coming here, Pastor coming. We're 1.5 below. Two days here, boys. We're looking at ten fives and some 42. 42. This is Castle One, standing by. Out.